This is They Create Worlds, episode 87, Virtual History. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. All right, everyone. It's time to get out your Oculus Rift, your virtual boys, your other virtualing devices. Your iPods, but not the iPod you're thinking of. The Google Dream and a myriad of other things that have come out in the last almost 20 years, right? Yeah. 20 years commercially, but even longer than that, if you're talking about when people were dreaming of virtual worlds that we could all lose ourselves in. It's been a dream in fixing computer technology for a long time, and it's been a dream that always seems to be just around the corner, just a few years away. We're close. This time it's going to be big. This time we're all going to make it. Especially if we have it monocolored. (laughs) And so far, that hasn't really happened. I mean, clearly, virtual reality is something that is continuing to be explored and that is continuing to have successes today. I think of, for instance, the Tetris Effect game that came out late in 2018, which got a lot of people excited. But it's never quite yet fulfilled that kind of dream of this is how we are going to experience games now. This is how we're going to experience reality now. That always seems to be just around the corner. It's the next big thing. It's coming, really, we promise. But it's been around for a very long time. And the reason that we chose to do this subject at this juncture, which I did mention briefly at the end of the last episode, is that there's a book that came out very recently by Blake Harris, the author of the book Console Wars, that turns its attention to virtual reality, but it's basically just a profile of Palmer Lucky and the development of Oculus and the development of the company that formed around the Rift. And he kind of says at the beginning of the book that virtual reality existed in labs and stuff and people were thinking about it, but you know, now we finally have virtual reality and it's all thanks to Palmer Lucky. And There's no doubt that Palmer Lucky was part of the next step forward, but to put it that way really kind of just sells short in a very poor way, I think, all of the innovation that led to that moment, because we did have virtual reality before that, and it wasn't just in labs. In the mid-90s, we thought that that virtual reality future had arrived, and it was starting to become really mainstream, and obviously it didn't work out, but you can't just say that until... Oculus and until the Rift, this stuff was just sitting in labs because it was out there. People knew what it was, and people had been trying to realize this dream of that form of interactive entertainment for decades. Yeah, it's really interesting. We both have grown up with virtual reality sort of being out there in periphery, Mm -hmm. something that we would come across in the arcade occasionally or some other unique form or other, or we might even see it advertised or something. The games were very primitive and were really limited to the hardware at the time. And it is only seems around now that technology has gotten down to the point where it's 
small enough and fast enough, it can keep up with virtual reality and the needs it has. And really what seems to be holding it back, at least in my opinion, is a really comprehensive, easy to use user interface for it. Right. That's part of it. There's a few parts to virtual reality, right? I mean, there's what we've really focused on and what inventors have really focused on, which is the visual immersion. Vision has always kind of been the sense that we as human beings have paid the most attention to and put the most development into. So it's really no surprise that the part of quote unquote virtual reality that receives the most attention is the headset and is this manner in which you have this world that you've entered into that you feel like you've entered into and that surrounds you. That's really not virtual reality all on its own, right? Just because you're in this space, it can trick your eyes and because it tricks your eyes, it can trick your brain. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're really interacting in a convincing way in a VR space. And that has kind of been, I think, the big challenge. Uh, I mean, just when you look at games today, the games that have been most successful so far in this current virtual reality boom are short experiences, abstract experiences. I mean, there is a Skyrim VR, right? I mean, you can mm -hmm. play Skyrim in VR. That's... That's one of the outliers, but most stuff is not about really moving around in a world, not really walking around a world. It's more about having the world come to you or teleporting to a spot and then doing some gameplay in that fixed spot and then teleporting someplace else. It's in part because we don't have the rest of that apparatus. I mean, yes, we do have treadmills that have been developed that allow you to walk in place and feel like you're getting somewhere, and we have more and more developed haptic feedback devices that allow us to feel things. And eventually those technologies, as they continue to come on, will make true virtual reality possible, I'm sure. And I'm sure they're just around the corner as they've always been. But right, I mean, we only really have a, a small portion of the virtual reality experience that we've really figured out well. And one could argue that that part of it, the visual, we really even haven't figured out perfectly yet. We're just much more ahead on that than we are in other areas. Well, since virtual reality has been around for a long time, when did it all really start? When did we have the first thing I can point to and go, ha-ha, that is virtual reality? So it's really an incremental thing, and there's really a few different ways to look at it. And so where we really got the thing is kind of, in a way, a matter of how you define the thing. Certainly, it goes back for decades. The main technique that allows any of this virtual reality stuff to even begin to be possible is actually something that has existed for a very long time or has been known for a very long time. And that, of course, is the stereoscopic effect. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that one. Yeah, that's where we have two separate images that go into your eye and the way that human beings and most frontal-facing binocular predators see 3D is they take these two slightly offset images, meld them together in their brains, and they can sort of form this 3D shape. 
Exactly. And this is the technique that is behind the Viewmaster that some of you may remember playing with as toys. This is the technique that is directly responsible for the 3D movies that you can sometimes see in theaters. And it's also at its very core what makes virtual reality possible as well, because we get that sense of depth by having the same image beamed to each of our eyeballs at a slightly different angle in order to create that depth. And this is something that has been used to great effect since the early 19th century. And it's even been used in coin-operated entertainment since the late 19th century. We talked in our Beginnings of Arcade episode about the very early days of the arcade and how movie devices like mutoscopes and kinetoscopes were some of the very first stars of the arcade. Now, those were not 3D devices, but in the same period of time, another device that we did not talk about was the uh, Kaleoscope, or Kaleoscope, I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced, which was a very, very popular stereoscopic viewer in the 1880s that you'd stick a coin in and then it would give you an image or a series of images in succession, like a slideshow or whatever, that you could look at using the stereoscopic effect. Obviously, that didn't invent the stereoscopic effect. It went back even earlier than that. But, you know, it was monetized for coin-op. This was a big deal. And in one way, this is the first virtual reality. I mean, nobody's going to mistake it for the kind of virtual reality that we're talking about today. Even people at the time weren't necessarily fooled into thinking that they were staring at another world. But being able to peer through these goggles or peer through these glasses and see an image rendered in front of them in three dimensions, that was pretty shocking, obviously, and was a very popular thing even back then, even when there was no gameplay attached to it, even when it was just still images and not moving images. That was a very big deal. And then, of course, in the late 1930s, the Viewmaster is invented, which uses that same effect. And I don't even know, you have young nephews, Jeff, do kids still use Viewmasters or is that old timey stuff now? I think it is old timey now. I do not recall my sister ever getting a Viewmaster for my nephews. Right. And I mean, Viewmasters predate our childhood. I mean, Viewmasters were developed like in the late 30s and were a toy even when our parents were kids. So, you know, it's not like it originated with us in the 80s, but that's another example of kind of the stereoscopic effect being used to show images, tell stories. In a way, that's a form of virtual reality. But of course, it's not the kind of immersion we are talking about when we talk about what you need for a virtual reality game, because these are just still images. So kind of the next step when you're moving from still images uh, with the stereoscopic effect is to move into kind of a, a virtual experience using film instead. And there was actually a guy in the 1950s by the name of Morten Heilig, who is uh, considered by some to essentially be the father of virtual reality today, even though what he was doing had nothing to do with a computer, came up with the first coin-operated entertainment, the first arcade game that could in some way be considered a virtual reality thing. This was something called the Sensorama. He invented it in the 1950s. It kind of debuted in the early 1960s. This was a device that used film, but it made use of the stereoscopic effect. It had a stereoscopic display. 
we'll put this in the show notes. Though, of course, with all this virtual reality stuff, obviously watching it on your non-stereoscopic monitor is not going to give you the full effect, but we can kind of at least show you what these machines were like. The Sensorama machine was uh, a device with, with film in it, and you sat down in front of it, and then you, you leaned forward and you peered into it. There was this piece that came out from the front of it, and you stuck your head in there to totally immerse yourself. It would play film strip in stereoscopic 3D, but then it would also use haptic feedback. There'd be a vibrating chair. It used fans to kind of have wind blowing in your hair because you're, you're driving in several of these. It even had smell generators that would occasionally squirt out a scent of some kind that was appropriate to the film that was being played. And so it really tried to stimulate all of the senses. Of course, there was, were speakers as well, and your head's kind of in this box, so the speakers are kind of positioned where your ears are and giving you the noise. Just stereo, it wasn't surround sound, but still, you've got sight, you've got sound, you've got touch, and uh, you've even got smell. No taste, but the other four senses are all in some way being stimulated. And he had six films for this. Most of them were driving related, but there were also, uh, there was a belly dancer one and uh, one called a date with Sabina. So there were a couple that were also a little racier. And then one called I'm a Coca-Cola bottle, which I don't know exactly what it was, but I imagine it has something to do with being like you're being drunk, I guess. I don't know. But the point is, you know, you have these experiences and they are immersive. It's not full on virtual reality as we think of it today, because, of course, one of the main things that's missing there is head tracking. And I think when you start talking about what makes something virtual reality and what just makes something stereoscopic, I think that's the big difference. If you're using a Viewmaster, if you're using a Kaleiscope, if you're using a Sensorama machine, you are staring directly at an image or directly at a film, and you are experiencing depth because of the stereoscopic effect, but you're only staring straight ahead, and the image only changes right in front of you. The main thing that gets us to what we consider virtual reality is head tracking, where there is some kind of sensor that tracks your head as it moves and reveals a new part of the world as you turn your head. Because now it doesn't feel like you're just watching something. Now it feels like you're really someplace else and you're experiencing what's going on around you. That makes sense, right? Yes, because before we have something with a headset that I put on and then move around with, all I am doing is really watching a glorified film from the 60s or 70s where you had those red and blue lens throwaway glasses that were the first sort of iteration of 3D in the theater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were a couple of steps on the way. You know, when you talk about first, firsts are often a very useless concept. I mean, sometimes it's good to know. Sometimes they inform our understanding of a topic. But if something was first, but it didn't really influence anyone else or didn't really lead to the development of something else, then, then first becomes less important. So with everything we talk about here, there may be a first that happened earlier than something else. But it's really not important because there are just a few key steps. So the first head-mounted display uh, because when we think of VR today, we think of something being placed over your head. 
was created in 1960, and it was created by our friend Heilig again. Heilig is really keen on trying to figure out a way to create more immersive uh, viewing experiences. And so in 1960, he creates a head-mounted uh, stereoscopic device with a wide field of vision and with stereo sound, but it doesn't track. It's basically just his sensorama in scaled-down form. The next year, the Philco Corporation creates the first motion-tracking head-mounted display. But it's not really virtual reality. It was developed for the military, and the idea was that a general or some high-up military person could view a dangerous situation without actually being there. And so there would be a camera out in the field, linked through closed circuit, and then as you turned your head, that camera would move and, and show you something else. So it's, it's not really quite the same thing as what we can consider virtual reality. So these things are out there, but truly the concept of virtual reality as we think of it today really started, even if you can say this thing was done before, this that thing was done before, really started with Ivan Sutherland, one of the most important pioneers of computer graphics. Sutherland was one of the first people that really started developing the idea of computer art and computer graphics in the 1960s at a time when, as we've talked about in many episodes, including our time-sharing episodes very recently, when displays were just very, very incredibly extremely rare on computers. Nobody was thinking of computers as an art platform or as a graphical platform because so few people had graphics. But Sutherland was at MIT. And as we've talked about before, MIT had the Whirlwind computer, and MIT had some of the earliest real-time computers. And these computers did have vector displays, point plotting and or vector displays hooked up to them, which means that you could do line art on these displays. And because these are computers that process in what's called real-time, it means that you can have shapes, and you can have shapes get drawn, and you can have shapes be rotated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And Sutherland, in the early 1960s, with his Sketchpad program at MIT, was kind of the first one being like, hey, look, we can use these computers to draw graphics. Ooh. <laughs> and so, it naturally, once he kind of started working on that, he started thinking even bigger, uh, because he's a pretty smart guy, pretty visionary guy. And so, in 1965, he theorizes something, he puts together a theory or a concept of something called the ultimate display. And what the ultimate display is, is essentially the holodeck from Star Trek. <laughs> the exception being that you'd still need this, this head-mounted display. He's thinking in terms not of walking around in a real world, but being able to put a head-mounted device on your head that gives you that stereoscopic effect and a 3D sound effect, combine that with tactile feedback, and then use computer hardware to maintain that world in real time. And that's kind of the breakthrough. It's like, let's take this idea of stereoscopic, let's take this idea of a display, but let's hook it into a computer to interact with objects in a realistic way. The ultimate display concept of Ivan Sutherland is really the birthplace of virtual reality. And as we'll see, kind of 
a lot of what goes on after in virtual reality kind of springs from Utah because Utah's computer science program in this period when Ivan Sutherland and David Evans were there that later together formed the defense contractor Evans and Sutherland. There was a legendary group of students that came through there in the mid-1970s, earlier mid-1970s. Ed Cottmull, one of the founders of the Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Division that later became Pixar, he came through Utah in that time period. Jim Clark, who founded Silicon Graphics and who revolutionized special effects with his Silicon Graphics workstations, he came through that program. And Alan Kay, who first envisioned the idea of the smartphone, essentially, he wasn't thinking in terms of phone functionality, but he was thinking in terms of a powerful computer that you could hold in the palm of your hand. Alan Kay came through Utah. So this was a real breeding ground for advanced ideas and special effects in graphics in computer rendering. And this is kind of ground zero for virtual reality. And in fact, our good friend Ivan is the one who creates the first real virtual reality kind of display as we think of it today in conjunction with a student of his named Bob Spruill. They created a device in 1968 called the Sword of Damocles. Those of you that know your Greek mythology, the legendary Sword of Damocles, the story of the Sword of Damocles is kind of a, a parable or you could even almost call it a fable, though it's not really classified as that, that is about power and the dangers that come with being a person of great power. Damocles was a courtier to a Greek king. This is all kind of semi-legendary stuff, obviously, but a Greek king in Syracuse on Sicily named Dionysus, named after the god, obviously. And Damocles proclaims to his king that he's amazingly fortunate to have all this great power and authority, and it would be great if I could have all that you have. And so Dionysus offers to switch places with him for a single day so he can see what that really feels like. So what Dionysus does is he arranges for a sword to be hung over the throne that's being held by a single horsehair. So it's very precariously perched which means that it could fall at any moment and fall straight down and kill the person on the throne, to show Damocles that there are always threats hanging over the head of someone who's in power, and that person always has to be watchful and always has to be anxious and nervous about who may be out there trying to bring him down. Then finally, Damocles is like, this is too much, I gotta get off this throne, man. So that term, the sort of Damocles, has often been used to denote a threat that is hovering just out of sight that you kind of know is there, but you don't know exactly when it's going to hit you. The Sword of Damocles VR rig, it's actually not quite as dark as all that. This first rig, because of the technology involved, was very, very heavy. It was kind of the first motion tracking uh, headset that was linked into a computer. And it was very, very heavy. And because it was so heavy, it had to be supported from above, your head could not support the weight all by itself, not without getting a terrible headache and all of that kind of stuff. So it was actually attached to a pole that could be raised and lowered a little bit uh, in order to adjust for the height of the individual. And so because it was attached to this pole that was hovering over your head and would come down over you from above, them being smart people, they, start, they decided to 
make that illusion and call it the Sword of Damocles. So at this point, we don't have the haptic element. Sutherland felt the haptic element was important. His ultimate display included a haptic element. But the Sword of Damocles is just the headset. It's just the motion tracking with the stereoscopic effect. But this is kind of the beginning of the idea of like a virtual reality now. And of course, it's on a primitive computer, so it can only do line art. It can only do vector graphics. You cannot realize a full world with this thing. But still, it feels like you're looking around this abstract world. As you turn around, the world turns with you, and you're experiencing being in another place. And that kind of the start of it there at 1968 at the University of Utah. So now we have to fast forward a little bit because it really is at this point just something that's being experimented with in labs. I mean, there's really nothing that can be done out in the world at this point. At various places around the country, uh, particularly at MIT, there is work done throughout the 70s and into the early 80s on kind of taking this technology and refining this technology. But there's really not much there yet. And it's just because the computers have to get more powerful. We have to let Moore's Law run its course and we have to come up with something that will actually provide some kind of more realistic experience than what is possible on something like the Sword of Damocles. So the story kind of picks back up again at, of all places, Atari. We could never escape Atari, can we? <laughs> no, we really can't. And, of course, Atari in this period does not come out with virtual reality. And because of that, a lot of people don't realize that there was actually a lot of very, very, very important virtual reality work and work on virtual reality and entertainment that was done at Atari in the early 1980s. Atari was a big corporation. Anyone who's listened to this podcast or even anyone that's uh, remotely interested in video game history probably knows that. But I mean, when I say a big company, this was a company taking in billions of dollars. And so they had the capability to have some pretty sophisticated R&D operations going on. There's a disconnect that forms in some people's minds around this because of some of the anecdotes of specific engineers like Al Alcorn that had specific projects canceled. There's kind of this idea that Atari was selling the VCS, Atari was only interested in selling the VCS, Atari was not moving forward fast enough, Atari was not innovating their systems. Now, there's some truth to that, but that doesn't mean that they weren't spending money on R&D. Just because a lot of the big fancy pie-in-the-sky stuff never got turned into a product doesn't mean that Atari wasn't looking at it. Atari had a very lavish R&D operation. And in 1982, after Al Alcorn left, who had been the VP of R&D until he departed the company, they brought in no less an eminent personality than Dr. Alan Kay himself, even at that time already starting to become a legend in computer circles to be the head of their R&D operation. They lured him out of Xerox Park the pioneering Xerox lab that did so much to invent GUI interfaces and WYSIWYG applications and all of these things that we take for granted today on our computers that, believe me, we didn't take for granted when we had a blinking cursor and a keyboard back in the mid-1980s. We called that functional computing. <laughs> 
Uh, and they lured Alan Kay out and actually got him to be their head of research. Now, Kay himself has said since then, I've not talked to him, but he's a famous guy. He gives interviews. He said since then that his period at Atari was the least productive period of his entire life. There was a real clash between how he saw R&D and how Ray Kassar saw R&D. Now, again, there's some misconception that Ray Kassar didn't care about R&D. Ray Kassar would cut R&D budgets and cut R&D projects, and, and none of that's true. If you really want the story and all of that, we did like a four-parter on it. Yes. But Ray Kassar really did feel that the point of R&D was to serve product development needs. He saw an R&D operation as working on technology that is going to be viable within the next five to maybe seven or ten years. Alan Kay saw the point of R&D to be looking far out into the future and looking out 15 years, 20 years, trying to predict the next big thing way before it happens, just being right out there on the cutting edge. And so he was looking at a lot of technologies that were not necessarily going to be saleable within the next few years, but in his mind would help propel Atari and all of humanity, whatever, forward in the long term. So he looked at a lot of things, and one of the things that he did look at very closely was VR. And the main reason for that is there was, again, back at MIT, there was a research lab or a research group called uh, the Architecture Machine Group, uh, which was called Archmock for short by the people involved in it. They were doing a lot of work with stereoscopic imagery. There was a guy there named Scott Fisher who had gotten very interested as a teen in stereoscopic stuff and was very keen to explore using that with computers. And so at this architecture machine group, he was doing work with primarily 3D art as opposed to gameplay at first. But then once he got the 3D art side of it solved, he was like, well, this is kind of flat and unimmersive. And so then he started working on motion tracking and started working on all of this kind of advanced virtual reality stuff once again. And Alan Kay got wind of this, I'm sure, through conference reports or whatever else. It's not like they were keeping their work a secret. He became very impressed, and he actually brought some Atari executives to Archmarch to look at what was going on there, and they were very impressed. And uh, according to Fisher, uh, Atari actually tried to buy the lab at that point. They were so impressed, but it's, it's a university research lab. They can't actually buy that. doesn't work that way. However, they did basically hire everyone away that was working there and offered them big salaries to come work at Atari. So Scott Fisher started leading virtual reality experiments and virtual reality work at Atari. Now, Atari research didn't last very long after that because the company got into trouble and R&D, you know, was starting to get heavily cut even before the company finally fell apart. But it planted the seeds because this, it brought together a group of people that were interested in technology and then dispersed them out to the, into the world into all of these other companies, and some of them brought this VR bug with them. Fisher made some really important breakthroughs in virtual reality stuff while working for NASA. After he worked at Atari, he went to work for NASA because the whole VR thing, I mean, our thrust is obviously entertainment. 
But the whole VR thing has actually found a lot more use as a training tool than it has as a true game tool. I mean, virtual reality is being used to train people like doctors who need to pretend that they're operating on something without actually killing somebody because they don't know what they're doing yet. It's used by NASA to simulate moving around in hostile or, or alien environments. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uses outside of entertainment for VR, and some of those uses have become far more developed. I mean, there's a far greater use for VR in other areas than entertainment as it stands right now. And uh, Fisher was a big part of developing that. And, you know, he brought it into Atari and then he dispersed it out of Atari. And one of the guys that passes through Atari that is very important and is also quite a character as well uh, is an individual named Jaron Lanier, who becomes one of the real pioneers in taking this out of a laboratory environment and actually starting to bring it into the real world. Lanier had a very, very strange childhood. He's Jewish, and he's the son of a Viennese concentration camp survivor, his mom, and a father who immigrated from Ukraine to escape Jewish persecution there, pogroms from the Russians and the Ukrainians. His mother was a very good musician, but she was killed in a car accident when he was very young, when he was nine years old. And his father kind of chucked it all to wander the country. I mean, it's kind of weird. They moved out to the middle of New Mexico, and they kind of lived in tents for a while, and then they decided that they would build a geodesic dome to live in, and, and they did. And just kind of a, a really weird kind of existence on the fringes of society kind of thing. But uh, Lanier was also very smart, or is. He's still alive. Lanier is also very, very smart. So he got into New Mexico State University at the age of 13. Impressive. And, uh, you know, he was quickly taking graduate-level courses uh, in mathematics even after that. It was during this time that he discovered computers, and he discovered some of the virtual reality work that had been done, and he kind of latched onto that. This was something that interested him and that something that, he could imagine happening and imagine doing something with, though he took a very circuitous route to get there. He didn't get there right away. He ends up going to an art school in New York for a year or so. Uh, he's got a very artistic side, too, uh, from his mother. Ends up flaming out there. He comes back to New Mexico. He becomes an assistant to a midwife. He takes on this kind of nomadic experience for a while, traveling around Mexico with these counterculture types, not New Mexico, Mexico, down south of the border, with these kind of counterculture hippie-ish types. Uh, he ends up following a girl out to Los Angeles, uh, a girl that ends up being the daughter of the head of the Caltech physics department. That relationship doesn't last, but he's, he's kind of bumming around here and there. And then he kind of figures out that he can do computer work. It's like he never got a degree in computers, but I mean, he knew computers and he worked with computers and it had never occurred to him before that he could actually get paid for knowing how to do stuff with computers. So in the early 1980s, he, he starts doing that and he starts creating some games, just a, a couple of games here and there, and he gets royalties for those. 
he has a very successful game, a very kind of trippy game called Moon Dust. Comes out for the Commodore 64 in 1983. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. It's very psychedelic in its color scheme. <laughs> but that game resonates. I mean, it's not one of the biggest hits of all time, but it gives him enough money that he's got royalties coming in and he can kind of go off and experiment with some of his own kind of thing. And uh, he ends up in the valley, moves to Palo Alto in 1982. He is living in this kind of rickety hut out someplace. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a really kind of almost unbelievable story, but <laughs> it's, it's true. And he started gathering like-minded people. He'll meet people in the valley. He meets some Stanford students. He meets some technology tinkerers. And these people kind of naturally start gravitating around him at his hut. and they start experimenting with this and that. I mean, they're all, they've all got sources of income. I mean, just because he's living in a rickety hut doesn't mean he doesn't have money. They can buy stuff. They start experimenting with lots of things. And virtual reality is one of those things that they really start experimenting with because he's had this idea in his head about virtual reality ever since reading about Sutherland's work uh, when he was at New Mexico State University in the 70s. One of the people he meets is a guy named Tom Zimmerman. He's just one of these tech guys are, that are around that he kind of meets. And Zimmerman is the first one that comes up with a really kind of practical haptic glove that can be used for virtual reality that allows you to manipulate your hand and your fingers and cause things to happen in a virtual reality setup due to haptic sensors located all through the glove. So this is kind of where you first get the kind of classic, so to speak, VR pairing that, at least in the 90s, was etched into everybody's brain of having the headset on your head and having the gloves and your arms kind of waving around out there and being like, like a zombie, except you're making stuff happen in, in the world that nobody can see with you because it's over your eyes. You know, that really comes through the collaboration of Zimmerman and Lanier. So... They're kind of sort of doing this stuff. And then the publisher of his Moondust game suggests that maybe he go to SIGGRAPH, the big computer graphics convention or conference, and present on his Moondust game because it's got these really trippy, really weird graphical effects going on in it. And so, you know, he agrees to do that. And it's in Austin that year. It kind of rotates. It happens at multiple places. And while he's out there, he falls in with this Archmock group that I talked about before, this group of MIT people. And because he kind of falls in with them, he doesn't join the lab, but he's kind of, I don't think he joins the lab, but he's kind of there with them. When Alan Kay poaches them all for Atari, he ends up getting a job at Atari 2 as a summer kind of intern kind of person. He's not a permanent employee, but he gets kind of a fellowship kind of position in the Atari labs. So now he's in a place where people are doing real serious virtual reality work. Not that his work wasn't cool and wasn't important, but like he's in a big lab that's kind of really trying to focus on, let's get some kind of consumer product, let's get some kind of entertainment out of this. So he passes through that, comes out the other side, and is continuing to work with his band of merry tinkerers. There are five or six of them that are regulars and a few others that rotate in and out just kind of playing around with this almost casually. Like I said, they've all got their other sources of income that are kind of keeping them alive. They don't really have a company. They don't really have anything except their dreams and their ideas. 
this virtual reality thing is starting to slowly permeate the culture and people, at least in tech circles, are starting to kind of become aware of it through, you know, presentations and papers and all of that stuff. And so Scientific American actually does a profile, kind of a friend of a friend calls Scientific American. It's like, you really have to check out what this Lanier guy's doing. It's, it's amazing. So Scientific American actually interviews him about this whole VR thing that he's doing uh, with the head tracking and the glove, haptic glove and all of this kind of stuff. You know, it's Scientific American. They're very formal and very stuffy. This is how Lanier tells the story in his uh, autobiography. And, you know, they're, they're kind of very formal and very stuffy. And so everyone in that world has an affiliation. So he, as he tells the story, during the interview, they keep saying, you know, who are you with? Who are you with? And he's like, you know, I'm not, I'm just doing this, man. You know, I'm just doing it. I'm writing visual programming languages. I'm working with this hardware. I'm just doing it. It's like, no, 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 seriously, who are you affiliated with? And so finally he's like, okay, I'm with uh, VPL Research uh, Incorporated. <laughs> Doesn't exist. And the, and the guy's like, oh, does that stand for visual programming languages? And he says, no, it stands for a virtual programming language. <laughs> and it's like, okay, great. You're with VPL Research Incorporated. And so the article gets published, and it's mentioned that he's got this literally non-existent company. But because he put that ink on the end, because he didn't just say he was with VPL Research, because he put that ink on the end of it, that made people who saw the article think there was a real company there. So then some people in the venture capital world in, in Silicon Valley that read this article are like, dude, we got to get you some funding. This is amazing. We need to get your company funding. And then he's basically like, but there isn't a company. And then the guy's like, well, there's a company now, son. <laughs> and so that's how VPL Research gets formed, which is really the first corporation that is completely 100% dedicated to, pers- uh, to virtual reality. And in fact, Lanier is credited. It's a bit controversial. Lanier is often credited with coming up with the term virtual reality. Some people say he came up with it. Some people say, well, no, he wasn't the first one to say it, but he was the one that popularized it. But he's the one that starts referring to this entire thing as virtual reality. He gives it the name. He gives it the buzz. He gives it the feel that this is something that's real because uh, we human beings, we often don't think something's real until we can put a name to it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so now it has a name and it's called virtual reality. And so in a lot of ways, Jaron Lanier is the pioneer, the true pioneer of the virtual reality field. He's not the first one to do it, not even close, but he's sometimes considered the father of virtual reality because he coined the term and it was kind of his efforts and his promotion of it that started causing it to permeate the zeitgeist and started people to become aware that this was something that was happening. It also didn't hurt that he was a very artistic guy, a very articulate guy, and a very good writer. So he was kind of a decent poster child. He wasn't just a nerd sitting in a corner at his computer with no social skills. There were many facets, or are, because he's still alive. There are many facets to Lanier. And I think the fact that he was such an interesting and compelling figure also didn't hurt in the, in the spread and the promotion of this. So VPL is doing a lot of big research into this and 
writing programming languages and doing displays, doing haptic feedback. They also want to try to get something into the marketplace. I mean, a lot of this stuff is still pie in the sky at this point, but they kind of want to get something into the marketplace as well. And so they decide that they're going to take their glove, Tom Zimmerman's glove, haptic feedback glove that he's created, and they're going to turn this glove into a commercial product for a video game system. Do you remember any gloves for video game systems, Jeff, from when you were a lad? Back in my day, when we were over in that uh, Germany place, we went to some sort of military base, and then inside of this glass box with all these other Nintendo games, and I was like, ooh, I like these. I saw this device, this gloving device, that if I put it on my hand, supposedly all the power of Nintendo would be mine at my fingertips. I could control Mario with a flick of the finger, defeat Zelda with just a hand wave, and drive like I've never driven before. I don't think you actually beat Zelda. Did, did you just advocate domestic violence with Princess <laughs> Zelda? No. Because I think I clearly a... heard you say you could beat Zelda. Zelda 2. <laughs> There's a very interesting video of the nerd, the angry video game nerd, defeating the final boss of The Legend of Zelda 2, with just wearing the power glove, just sort of flicking his hand back and forth. And in the background, you just see him beat at the game. <laughs> no, I know. It's just the way you said it. You know, it's like, did he just say you can use the power glove to beat Zelda? That doesn't sound very <laughs> healthy. That doesn't sound safe. <laughs> But then again, the power glove is so bad. As certain Nintendo advertisements masquerading as a movie franchise would attest, a.k.a. The Wizard. We'll put that in the show notes for those of you that don't know the wonders of the power glove in the Wizard movie and the teenager who wields it. <laughs> he wears so, the cool yeah. glasses. Yeah. So, yeah, the power glove is actually a very, very stripped down, and I want to make this clear, a very, very stripped down version of the glove that Tom Zimmerman created at VPL to be part of a virtual reality rig. Now, I mean, these rigs that they're creating, these are rigs that cost tens of thousands of dollars. And even the glove, I'm sure, costs many, many hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. So in order to scale that down into something that could be sold commercially, the power glove. They had to compromise a lot on it, and they had to do a lot of things that really inhibited its capability to serve as any kind of video game controller. And also, they had to use certain materials that weren't necessarily best for stuff you wear on your hand, like hard plastic. I've never used a power glove myself. I desperately wanted one when I was a kid for a bit. Didn't we all? Thank God I never got one. Uh, but my understanding is, is that when you put that thing on, there's a piece of plastic that digs in to your hand when you, like, clench your hand to make a fist on it. You don't really want hard plastic as part of a glove, but it's the realities of the materials that they could use. I mean, uh, so, yeah, that's the power glove. The power glove comes directly out of this virtual reality research and is really one of the first commercial products, commercial entertainment products that anyone gets a chance to use that 
is in some way related to virtual reality. There's no stereoscopic effect in the uh, Power Glove games. There's no 3D. It's just you have this glove and you can use that to theoretically do things. In the same time period, Sega had a, a very interesting device that they created. They actually created 3D goggles for the Master System. Mark Cherney, who we've talked about several times, a very brilliant and innovative hardware and software designer, designed those 3D glasses for Sega. And I mean, it was a kind of expensive peripheral with limited support. So, of course, it didn't like do great business. I mean, it's a console that didn't do great business either. But this is kind of another example of something vaguely virtual reality-like coming into the world of video games. Though I have to emphasize again, the 3D glasses are not really a virtual reality thing because there's no head tracking. It's kind of just a very fancy 3D glasses. It also has other problems. For instance, this kind of processing takes a lot of processing power. And so now you're talking about really reduced frame rates. As these poor little 8-bit processors try to chugga, 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 chugga along and <laughs> create these 3D effects. So you're, you're starting to see some bleed over, but again, none of it is really virtual reality as we think of it. The first company that actually delivers credible virtual reality entertainment of some kind is actually a British company. It goes by a couple of different names. It's... Kind of official name is W Industries, named presumably after its founder, Dr. John Waldern, but it was more commonly known as Virtuality. Virtuality was the first company to kind of crack the idea of how do you create a virtual reality rig that can be commercial. Though, of course, we're not talking about doing something in the home at this point because we are talking about rigs that cost tens of thousands of dollars. But he figured you could get these things into arcades now, into coin-operated amusement spaces, because, of course, the machines can be more expensive in those spaces. And so in March 1991, he debuted this system in the United Kingdom, because that's where he's from, that was a full virtual reality setup with uh, the headset and with uh, hand controls that people could play around in in the arcade. Of course, this was a uh, $40,000 unit. $40,000. It may be possible for arcade games to be more expensive than home games, but that's still incredibly expensive for an arcade. So this was not seen as something that could go just anywhere and everywhere. This was something that could kind of only be installed in like the biggest arcades, the most prestigious arcades as an attraction because it's something that people had never seen before. So outside of the fact that you hope people will put some money in that machine, you also hope that having that machine in your arcade presumably would bring people into your arcade generally. Obviously, this was a device that uh, was not a quarter-accepting device. These things were taking in $2, $3, $5 for a short experience. I think when my dad and I played it, it was something like 5 to $10 per play. Right, right. But this was the first time that this kind of stuff got into the wild. The company was established in 1987. It took a few years for them to, to get everything together, but by 1991, 
they were having their first pods uh, out into the field, out in the field. So virtuality created these rigs, these setups that they called pods, and they had a, a standing one and a sitting one, though they found that the standing ones often didn't work very well because people would kind of get stuck in a corner someplace because they really didn't kind of understand this idea of of moving around in the space, and it was just too disorienting when they had to stand up and do things. But they found the sit-down units actually had kind of some success. The first one they really did was one called VTOL, which was a Harrier jet simulation. They did a biplane dogfight simulation. They did a space battle simulation. Uh, those got some traction. The units that they were using were actually just PCs. There's some sources that say that they used Amigas on the early units, but that's actually not true. <laughs> uh, you'll see that a lot, but they were using PCs. They never used Amigas. But this was in the time before 3D graphics acceleration, before you had separate 3D hardware. And so they were basically just running this off of some really, really heavily customized PCs, but they were doing this without graphics cards. It was in no way a perfect system. There were a lot of problems with it. The tracking was done through a magnetic sensor in the headset and in the handset. And the cables that had to be strewn all around these things would often cause magnetic interference that would cause the controls to kind of go crazy and the visual display to go crazy and give kind of a jittery effect that would be very unfortunate. The PCs that were powering these things ran very, very, very hot and were prone to overheating. The headsets, of course, had to be adjusted. The lenses had to be adjusted for each individual that played the game because everyone's vision is slightly different. You have two LCD lenses within the headset, and that's what beams the stereoscopic images to your two eyes, and those have to be recalibrated for every person that uses it, which means that you have to have an attendant there. And of course, you're smashing something against your face that somebody else has just been wearing right before you. It's sweaty, and it's kind of, in, in a way, kind of vaguely disgusting to think about. So there was a lot of difficulty with this technology. The technology kind of worked, but it wasn't perfect, and it was hard to control, and it was very expensive, and by the time you kind of got the hang of it, you were already kind of being ushered out of it, and you've just paid $5 for what exactly? Three minutes of questionable content. <laughs> of course, the graphics were somewhat primitive as well. And the thing is, Moore's Law is pushing the technology forward, so the technology is getting better and better. But these arcade units, once they locked the technology for a particular pod, they had to keep that pod exactly the same through that pod's life cycle of two or three years because of maintenance concerns. They can't have a million different configurations at a million different arcades because it's impossible to do the maintenance on that. So they did update the pods um, about three years later after the first pods came out. But during this whole time, computer technology is improving, but the pods can't. So while your latest arcade games are getting more and more impressive graphics, you know, your normal arcade games, these things are standing still for years at a time 
because of the limits and how you can reconfigure them in the moment. So, you know, they were an interesting novelty. I think probably the game that most people remember the most, a game called Dactyl Nightmare, because that was actually a multiplayer game, unlike most of the others, where up to four players were placed in this environment and were shooting at each other. And then there was this pterodactyl that would randomly swoop down and come after people. And there didn't really seem to be any rhyme or reason to who it came after. It didn't go after the winners. It didn't go after the losers. It just kind of appeared and kind of had to avoid it. I guess it was meant to be another element to make you kind of look around the world and try to figure out what you're doing. And I think that's probably the game that a lot of people probably remember the most that had some positive elements to it. I think you played that one, didn't you? I did. I uh, played it with my dad. We played it like two or three times. He won. Was it any fun? I was more confused than anything, is what I would call. <laughs> By the time I finally figured out how the controls worked, oh, the three minutes are up. Right. Now, I have to ask, I know you have some issues with your vision that, that we mm -hmm. don't have to go into with the listeners if you don't want to, but I'm just curious how the, the virtual reality even worked for you. Did it work okay? or Okay. Going into my history here, I uh, have an interesting level of uh, vision with uh, a combination of astigmatism and other stuff that's gone on. So 3D these days does not work very well on me unless I concentrate really hard. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I could actually see 3D just fine. I see. There was a surgery I went through that reattached the muscles on my eyes so that they were more in alignment with each other. But as a consequence of this, because of how I grew up, my brain got used to how to render 3D, it kind of destroyed that aspect of 3D uh. for me. If I see something stereoscopic, I have to heavily concentrate to force my brain to see the 3D. Otherwise, it just, it just doesn't work. But I remember back before that surgery, it would work just fine, and I'd had no issues with it. Gotcha. And, and of course, that does bring up a very good point. I mean, we kind of already hinted at this, but VR is an illusion. Mm -hmm. VR does not really happen. You're, you're looking at two perfectly flat images, just like any other flat image that you look at throughout the day. But your brain fills in the gaps. It's all an illusion that your brain is happy to play a part in which means that if your brain isn't very good at generating that illusion, then even if your normal depth perception is not horrific, you may still not be able to see the 3D effect, which is another thing that is limiting in trying to make virtual reality truly mass market, because it's not really jacking into your brain, it's just tricking your brain. <laughs> yeah, in my case, what it effectively did, it just it destroyed my ability to really see stereoscopic video or stereoscopic anything unless I concentrate really hard on it, but it made it a lot easier for everyday life seeing 3D. So trade-offs there. Right. So this period here in the early 1990s when virtuality was coming out, this is also the period of time when the movie The Lawnmower Man comes out, which introduces a lot of people to the concept of VR. This is the period of time when William Gibson's books are coming out and cyberpunk and this idea of jacking in is happening. So this is kind of the height of the initial virtual reality zeitgeist. 
so it doesn't take long for this thing that virtuality is doing to be imitated by others, not just in the arcade, but also in the home. FASA actually does a fascinating project using Battletech, where they create their own pods. You know, FASA is the creator of the game Battletech. They have a project, a virtual reality project, where they create these giant pods where you're emulating the control of a mech in in Battletech. And they actually created their own spaces called Battletech centers in conjunction with some other companies where, you know, people could pretend that they were controlling these mechs. It was in some ways similar to what virtuality was doing, but also in a lot of ways completely different. And then, of course, you also had a concerted effort for the first time to get virtual reality into the home. Now, you have to remember what we talked about before. These virtual reality systems, the virtuality, the original virtuality pod was a $40,000 piece of equipment. Scaling that down so you can actually do it in the home? That's tricky. And the main thing, the main thing driving up the cost was the motion tracking. That was the most complicated and most expensive part of the entire system. And that was kind of the hurdle that made it seem likely that true virtual reality wouldn't be possible in the home. But there was a guy named Mark Pesci who had a company called Ono Sendai. He actually came up with a method of doing the motion tracking that only cost $1. The whole rig didn't cost $1, but just that motion tracking element only cost $1. And that suddenly made the idea of virtual reality in the home viable again. And so Ono Sendai ends up partnering with Sega, who, of course, is an arcade company, and they're taking note of what's happening in the arcade, and they're very interested to get some of this advanced technology into the home. And Ono Sendai, Pesci, and his partner Mike Donahue target Sega, figuring they might be interested in this, and get a meeting with Sega and show them their technology. And Sega decides to build a virtual reality headset for home use, which is absolutely unprecedented. They get it working. I mean, it has the motion tracking, it has the stereoscopic, it has all of the stuff you would expect, and uh, it's just a standard controller. You don't have the haptic side of it. But Sega also has another peripheral called the Activator that never worked very well, but theoretically it allowed you to use your body as a controller. It was a ring of IR sensors, essentially, that you placed yourself in the middle of, and then if you broke the plane of the the infrared light or whatever uh, with a part of your body, that would cause an action to happen, like pressing A. And so when you combine the two, you almost kind of sort of in a way got a a full-body kind of movement, though uh, not in any way perfect. So in 1993 at the CES, Sega introduces this headset uh, that they deliberately designed to be more sleek, more modern looking, not quite as bulky looking as some earlier ones. Uh, And they're really going to make a go at this. They're really going to try to bring this into the home. But at the end of the day, they discover they can't. And the reason is that it just it makes people ill. Because the other thing about VR is there is a real, real, real possibility of getting someone motion sick. If you have a herky-jerky frame rate or you have anything just a little ways out of alignment, 
you can create some really kind of nasty dissonance in the brain that makes it say, I don't want to live like this anymore. You know, it all stems from a self-defense mechanism where it goes, okay, if vision goes wonky, that means we ate something bad and we are poisoned. Panic. Evacuate stomach. Evacuate stomach. Panic. Exactly. And, uh, you know, prolonged use could also cause headaches and that kind of thing. So there were just, as they tested it more and more on people, they just discovered that it was just too much of a literal headache to be able to release. And so they threw it to the wayside. VPL actually tried to enter the home in the same time period. They hired a, a couple of people that took all of this expensive stuff in their pods and reduced it onto a Z80 microprocessor, an 8-bit microprocessor, and really cut the price down to just a few hundred dollars. And they partnered with Atari Games to create a home headset that was going to be for the Atari Jaguar. Atari Games, the arcade company, was not the part of the company that created the Jaguar. That was Atari Corp, Jack Trammell's company, but they were partnering with the arcade company, which also did have a, a home subsidiary, to kind of create this piece of kit that they were then going to make available for the Jaguar. Jaguar, of course, being a more powerful system than the Genesis, uh, could potentially overcome some of the shortfalls that the Genesis had in terms of maintaining a good frame rate and whatnot. It's still very likely that that system was not going to exactly be a great setup. But they never got a chance to test that any further because the Jaguar went kablooey. It was a failure. Atari Corp stopped selling it. And so then work on the headset for the Jaguar stopped. But that's two mid-90s video game systems that almost had virtual reality setups. Now, of course, in addition to Sega and Atari doing all of this home stuff, one of the more infamous examples in the 1990s of trying to bring something akin to virtual reality into the home was the Nintendo Virtual Boy. We don't need to go into a lot of detail on this one here because we did do an episode on Gunpei Yokoi, who is the champion of the Virtual Boy, and kind of go into detail about what happened with that system in that episode. Uh, but you can't really mention the kind of 1990s hope and allure of virtual reality without talking about that system. In some ways, the Virtual Boy was a bait and switch. It's not really virtual reality in the same way that we talk about these other systems. And that's probably some of what led to the disappointment. It was entirely LED-based, and it used mirrors. So it had these LEDs that were shown onto these two mirrors, one for each eye, and then reflected off the mirror into your eye to give this kind of depth and, and 3D effect. But this was a period of time when multicolored LEDs were very expensive. I'm not even sure if they had quite discovered the blue LED yet. The blue LED was discovered or invented, I suppose it's better to say, much later than red and green were. And blue LEDs are probably going to cause all of us to go blind by the time we're 60 by staring at them too. But that's a whole nother mess of issues. Really? Yeah, there's studies that show that blue LEDs do bad things to your eyes. That's why some glasses have blue light filters. You've probably seen blue light filters advertised. 
Yeah, I remember it was added on as an add-on package to my glasses, so I actually have that on. So maybe I'm less blind now. <laughs> um, but multicolored LEDs were very, very, very expensive back in the mid-1990s. So the Virtual Boy was created with only red LEDs. So you just had red and you had black. It was created by an American company, Reflections Technology. They took it to Sega. Sega didn't want it, so they took it into Nintendo. And as we discussed in our Yokoi episode, Gunpei Yokoi felt that video games were becoming less inventive, less interesting, and needed something to kind of jumpstart them. And he was actually right about that, uh, because the industry was starting to decline in sales volume, dollar volume, and 16-bit games were basically the same as 8-bit games, just with slightly fancier graphics. So, I mean, he wasn't wrong. He was just wrong about the solution. The solution is what Sony did with the PlayStation, essentially. His solution was this new LED depth of field stereoscopic thing, which he championed. And, you know, the Virtual Boy suffered from all the same problems that the Sega VR did, even though it wasn't true VR because there's no head tracking. So that's why I say it was really a bait and switch. But it, it caused headaches after long use. Um... It was so heavy that you couldn't wear it as a head-mounted unit, like a typical VR unit, which means it had to sit on a tripod on a table and you had to kind of hunch over to use it. There were reports that it caused vision problems, particularly in young children. Those reports, it turns out, turned out to be mostly unfounded, but they actually had to put a warning on the box at the time saying that it could cause vision problems. The Virtual Boy, even though it wasn't virtual reality, they chose to tie it in with the virtual reality concept by using that name Virtual Boy and by giving it the shape kind of of a VR headset, even if it wasn't a VR headset. And of course, it was an absolute dismal failure with many of the same problems that affected the Sega VR system that was never actually released. So uh, another example of that mid-90s hubris and, and one that was actually very damaging to the Nintendo career, uh, one Gunpei Yokoi. So when Blake Harris talks about, you know, before Oculus, there was, there was nothing. It's like, well, you had virtuality pods in the arcades. You had home rigs that almost happened for the Genesis and the Jaguar. You had some headsets, some high-end headsets that were coming out. They weren't really for general mass market consumption, but people were putting out headsets. System Shock, famous game from Looking Glass, was at one point going to have support for a particular virtual reality rig until it was discovered that that particular virtual reality rig had a nasty habit of catching on fire. Technical difficulties. I blame Shodan. So, you know, that was a problem. I mean, these things were working in overtime, so they could generate a lot of heat. I mean, like I said, the virtuality pods were often out of service just because the darn PCs would overheat. I mean, they didn't catch fire, but, you know, they would shut down or they would suffer massive frame rate hits because they were just chugging along. And then, of course, virtuality really got caught out because 3D acceleration started and graphical coprocessors started. So a PlayStation ran rings around a virtuality pod graphically. I mean, you didn't have the extra immersion of being in this world where you could move your head around in, but the polygons on the PlayStation, even though the PlayStation itself is not exactly the most capable 3D system ever created, 
it still blew the virtuality pods out of the water because there was a graphics coprocessor. There was increased graphical capability, and that's something that the pods, with their outdated technology, just couldn't keep up with. So virtuality was never a huge success in the arcades. They kept themselves going largely through making bespoke applications for corporate clients. For instance, they did a Ford Galaxy program where you're basically, you're just sitting in the back seat or the passenger seat, I guess, not the back seat of a Ford Galaxy car being driven around by a chauffeur and you can look around the car and you can fiddle with the radio dials or whatever and you can look out the window and other cars are passing you by. So, you know, it's it's not an entertainment experience. It's a it's a it's an infomercial experience. And they did some corporate training stuff, you know, again, kind of the corporate training stuff and advertising stuff and whatnot. I mean, that was really a more realistic example of what virtual reality could do at that time than games, which are, you know, fast action kind of experiences. And you need to have the high frame rate and you're constantly moving and you have inputs and you have to press A not to die. And it's just all very much more difficult than just sitting someone in the passenger seat of a Ford Galaxy and asking them to enjoy the ride. You want to buy our car because you're going to have this wonderful virtual experience. (laughs) But virtual reality was really being taken seriously in the 1990s. So seriously that even the Walt Disney Corporation got heavily involved with virtual reality. There was a trend in the early 1990s in Japan towards video game centric theme parks. And when I say that, I don't mean that you're, you know, riding the Sonic roller coaster or whatever. I mean that there were these theme parks like Wonder Egg from Namco and Joyopolis from Sega that were essentially giant video game arcade spaces, but they would include bigger, more interactive, more fancy games even than the ones that you would find in a typical arcade. You would find regular arcade games, but you'd also find these kind of big custom pieces. And the idea was it was kind of a a theme park arcade kind of combination. And uh, these were becoming very popular in the early 1990s in Japan. And so Disney was both, A, worried that the Japanese would bring the concept over to the U.S. and start to supplant traditional theme parks, and B, also thinking that if this works so well in Japan, maybe we should get involved in this and we can create the American version of Joyopolis and reap all the profits from that. There were articles in in the New York Times in the early 90s about how Sega had its sights on becoming the next Disney because there was this idea that video game experiences were going to be able to become more ride-like and were going to become more exciting than rides. And so a company like Sega could challenge a company like Disney in the theme park space. So the response to all this from Disney was to create a new portion of the theme park called Disney Quest, which was a space that was full of virtual reality experiences. They demoed it in 1994 at Epcot Center. One or two things set up to just kind of figure out the concept. Then they officially opened in 1998 as part of the Disney, the existing Disney theme parks. Virtual reality was heavily 
a part of this from the very beginning. Some of them were more game-like and some of them were more experiential, like they had an Aladdin's magic carpet ride where you put the VR rig on and then it's, it's like you're, you're flying on the, the carpet from the movie Aladdin. And some of them had more traditional gameplay, shooting things and whatnot, but they were virtual reality experiences. Uh, and they started opening them in cities. They didn't just build one in Walt Disney World. They also opened them in Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago. These kind of little mini theme parks that were inspired by what was going on in Japan. But then they never went anywhere. Uh, they started closing down. They're all gone now. Again, we weren't quite there. Everyone kind of thought we were there, but the technology just really couldn't support it. So even though Blake Harris goes too far in saying that uh, you know, virtual reality never really happened before the Oculus, it is true that it wasn't great. Though, I mean, there were, there were some good experiences. I mean, people did kind of enjoy Dactyl Nightmare, like I said. I mean, it was expensive as heck, but it wasn't completely unfun. And uh, they had another game, uh, Virtuality did, on their later generation rig called Zone Hunter, which was a, a first-person shooter that actually on the new rig did look pretty good. It was released in 1996. They had uh, a game called Buggy Ball that really wasn't too bad. Again, it was second generation and, you know, kind of a racing game. And because it was in the second generation pod, the graphics were a little better and it was a little more responsive. But the problem is by the time they got to their second generation pod in the late 90s, they were already hurting financially. And people had already kind of played the first generation of games and not been too impressed with them. So people weren't really giving the second generation a chance. And Virtuality actually went bankrupt in 1997. It's an interesting counterfactual. If the second round of games had been the first round of games, would they have done a little better? And uh, the answer is maybe a little better, but it was still expensive. It was still limited gameplay for the amount you had to pay for it. It was still finicky hardware. Even though it got better, it just wasn't time. So just as Disney's getting in in 1998 with their Disney Quest stuff, everyone else is kind of getting out. That's kind of when virtual reality becomes dormant. And then all of a sudden, right in the early 2010s, it comes back. Because reasons. Well, no, it, there's, there's actually a very good reason for the really difficult things, the really finicky parts of the system are high-quality LCD screens and reliable motion-sensing technology. What device, I'm not talking virtual reality, I'm just saying, what device suddenly started proliferating in the millions upon millions at the beginning of the 2010s that used LCD screens, and motion-sensing technology. As all those people who aren't watching this live can tell, I'm waving my phone at Alex. <laughs> That's right. You had the smartphone explosion, and what that does is it starts driving down the cost of this stuff and improving the technology much, much faster. Just think about that. In your phone, your phone that you're used to these days, 
that technology is really being as good as it is really came into vogue only about 10 years ago, 10 to 15 mm-hmm. years ago, give or take. It is amazing what these phone devices can do these days. They have really great high definition screens. They have a fantastic processor. If they had this back when they were initially playing around with VR, they'd be a quarter of the way there, halfway there, because I got this great screen that is pretty close to what the eye can see. And I got a processor that can keep up with the whole, with everything going around. And most modern phones, you have the ability to detect what its orientation is. Where Mm -hmm. is it going? How is it set up? It's just fascinating that the phone itself just works so well at this point. And that's why you have things like the Google Dream or other ones that just involve just, here's a case to put your phone in front of your face. (laughs) Exactly. And so that really is responsible for driving down the cost of the technology and driving forward the innovation in the technology to start making this stuff seem a little more reasonable. That's how you get to kind of the Oculus story. Palmer Lucky, it's kind of interesting, these, these pioneers of, of virtual reality, you know, I'm thinking of Jaron Lanier uh, when I say that, and the strange existences they lived. Palmer Lucky was another one of these really brilliant guys who flew through school and was very smart and then just kind of sat around in this strange kind of, I mean, I wouldn't call his lifestyle a hippie lifestyle because we're in the the 2000s now and it's a different world, but this kind of minimalist existence, he's literally living in a trailer in his parents' driveway. Like his parents have a house. He lives in a trailer parked outside the house. I guess that works as long as you got water. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm right. And, you know, I mean, it's not like his parents, like, locked the door on him. I mean, he he actually, he took the bathroom out of the trailer because he used the bathroom in the house. <laughs> but his his living space was this trailer. But he loved tinkering with technology, and so he would just spend all of his time in there tinkering with stuff and building stuff, kind of experimenting in the same way Lanier was experimenting in his rickety hut back in the uh, early 80s. And what he was really disappointed in, I mean, VR rigs kept getting made after this heyday in the 90s. It's just that they were very expensive and they were very specialized and they were very limited in certain ways and nobody was interested in them except really hardcore tech collector types. Or, you know, the more advanced kind of training, I mean, kind of the training and tourism and kind of scenarios that we talked about before, VR was finding a use. But if we're talking about consumer VR, you're really just talking about niche hobbyist people. What Lucky was really disappointed in is that there were no displays that had both a good resolution and a wide view. Because that's another thing about virtual reality is the field of vision on some headsets isn't necessarily all the way to the edges of your peripheral vision. Some virtual reality headsets look more like you're peering in a window or you're looking down a tunnel because you've got this image that has depth to it and that follows you around, but it doesn't necessarily cover your peripheral vision, so it doesn't really feel 100% immersive. And nobody had really done a good job. You could go wide view, but if you went wide view, it tended to have poor resolution, which takes you out of it. 
or you could go high resolution, but because that takes more processing power and it's more pixels, it means you generally didn't have the same view all the way around you. What Palmer Lucky did, uh, kind of on his own, tinkering in his trailer, was come up with a relatively cheap display that was also wide view and a good resolution. It wasn't like the best resolution or the best frame rate on the market, but it had a decent frame rate and a decent resolution, and it had a great wide view. So he figured this was something that other enthusiasts would be interested in, and so he started to advertise about the work he was doing, and his, initial, and his eventual plan was to sell this as a kit. He was going to do a Kickstarter to fund building the kits, and then he was going to send out kits just for people to play around with. But at the exact same time that he was doing this work, John Carmack, whom of course we've talked about before, the technological genius behind many of the important technological breakthroughs that did software, starts researching virtual reality. Carmack is this type that, you know, he does the game programming stuff, but he also gets interested and involved in other things. He got really into rocketry for a while. And I don't mean shooting off tiny little rocket. I mean, to the moon rocketry. And so he was funding rocketry experiments for a while. He goes off on kind of these tangents to his video game work. And at this time, he was starting to get really interested in virtual reality and really interested in seeing how some of the programs that they had done at id might run in virtual reality. So he's trolling the web, he's doing research, he comes across some posting Palmer Lucky made about what he's doing, and he sends Palmer Lucky an email saying, I would like several of your headsets to use for an E3 demo I'm putting together, this would be the 2012 E3, that is going to showcase Doom 3, I think it was, in virtual reality, in VR. Can you get me some? And, uh, you know, Lucky was like, sure. I mean, Lucky didn't let on that he was just a guy in a trailer and not a real company. But he gave him, like, I think might have even been the only copy of the headset he had at that point. He gave it to John Carmack, loaned it to him so Carmack could take it to E3. And Carmack displayed three different VR displays. Like he did the one with the highest resolution, the one with the best frame rate. Can't remember if that's true or not. But definitely he was displaying the one with the highest resolution, uh, the one with the widest view. And then like the one with the best frame rate or whatever, he was putting these three side by side and Lucky's was one of them. And people just came away raving about that headset that Palmer Lucky made. John Carmack, to his immense credit, I mean, he's a good guy, I think. Everyone was talking about Carmack's genius because it's not like Lucky was at E3. It was Carmack during the, doing the demonstration. So all the articles started being about the amazing thing Carmack did in virtual reality. But Carmack was like, no, 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 it was this guy, Palmer Lucky, that actually made the display. He's the one you should really be amazed with. All Carmack did was just take that technology and say, can Doom run on it? Right, exactly. This attracts the attention of a group of investors led by Brandon Uribe and, and a few other guys, all friends that had invested in some stuff together and had some money to throw around. This got this group of guys to decide we should invest in this guy and work with him. It goes from Palmer Lucky being like, well, I'll do a kit and a Kickstarter and I'll sell 200 of these to now we have this company, Oculus, this real legitimate company, and we're going to make real legitimate VR. We're not in this episode because it's, it's recent stuff and 
really more recent than we usually get into. We won't get into all the twists and turns of the Rift story. I mean, they were bought by Facebook in 2014 for $2 billion, which really made everyone sit up and take notice about VR. Uh, And then, of course, Lucky was forced out of the company after he was implicated in some right-wing internet trolling and that whole controversy. Carmack, because he left ZeniMax to join Oculus, Uh, ZeniMax sued, claiming he stole trade secrets when he left. And so there's a big lawsuit with ZeniMax, which is the parent company of id. And there's a lot of drama in that Oculus story that we won't get into, and which presumably Blake Harris's book gets into. I haven't read the entire book yet, so I can't say how good a job it does. But uh, certainly that's a source for learning some of the ins and outs of the story. But the important thing is, is that it, it brought VR back. And at the same time, you had Sony getting involved because Sony created the PlayStation Move controller, motion controller, in response to the Wii and all the success that Nintendo had with the Wii and its motion controls. The Move was actually a more sophisticated, in a lot of ways, motion controller than the Wii was, than the Wiimote was. The guys at Sony, led by Richard Marks, realized that the Move was such a good motion tracker that if you basically taped a move controller to a person's head, you suddenly had motion tracking for virtual reality. I mean, obviously, to create a full rig, you had to do more than just tape a move to someone's head. But they realized that they had a relatively cheap motion technology right there. And again, like I said, in regards to the 1990s, when Sega was exploring VR, the motion tracking was one of the most expensive parts of doing VR. So once they realized they had that, they developed an entire VR system themselves. And of course, there's other things like the HTC Vive and all of this. But because of the drop in price of all of this uh, technology that goes into cell phones, virtual reality kind of became a thing again. It's too early to see where it's going to go. I mean, we talked about the fact that you don't really have the big AAA experiences yet. You don't have the games that people sit there and and play for hours and hours and hours. If you look at some of the games that are particularly successful, particularly fun, I mean, you have the Tetris effect, which is basically Tetris, except with a lot of visual and audio enhancements that really play into virtual reality and you have a few uh, different moves you can do to clear lines but at its base it's still basically tetris another one that's gotten a lot of attention is keep talking and nobody explodes oh yes that's a fun one that's a very interesting game it's it's a bomb disposal game for those that haven't seen it where you've got this very cartoony looking bomb and you have to play around with it, press this, cut that, spin it around, look at it, examine, and try to figure out how to disarm this complex explosive device. And it's it's a great idea. It's it's a wonderful idea. But again, it's very much kind of uh, self-contained. You're standing in one place just solving a few puzzles kind of thing. What's really interesting about that, I find, is that it's not just you. It, it, it requires at least two people to play. You right. have one person who is actually manipulating the bomb, sort of like they're in the bomb shelter with the bomb. And right. then they're talking via radio or whatever. You can be next door to you. You can be online or whatever. And someone else has the manual. And so you communicate to them and go, 
Okay, I have a bomb with this serial number. And the guy flips through and goes, okay, found the serial number. Great. How many modules are we dealing with? You have this thing going back and forth to try and determine what kind of bomb you have. Okay, with these modules and that kind of bomb, let's see if we can figure out how to disable all of these little things. I'll throw into the show notes this really interesting video where there's two expert bomb disposal people who are trained to be actual bomb disposal guys, and they go through the process of disposing a bomb in this game. And it's really, really interesting to see how they work. You can see them go from the initial, they're talking to the camera, sort of jovial, hey, we're going to have fun thing. And then when they are disposing of that bomb, they are really in, it is on, this is real, we have our serious faces on, and they are just going calm. They don't, if you watch a lot of YouTubers or other gamers play this game, as that timer goes down, they start panicking and stuff. The timer got really close a few times with these bomb and disposal guys, but they just kept going slow, calm, methodical going. They didn't show a lick of panic, and that was really impressive to watch. Yeah, absolutely. That is a fun video. We'll put that in the notes for sure. So there's some fun experiences coming to virtual reality. but. They're not fully formed. We're not fully to the point yet where you could see kind of the ultimate display happening that Sutherland had envisioned. Uh, We still very well may get there in our lifetime. There are some really exciting things being done with the tactile side of virtual reality. Controllers that can actually send different tactile signals that makes it feel like you're clutching different types of material. There's... Of course, treadmills that have been developed that allow you to kind of feel like you're moving around. There's stuff being developed, but we're we're not quite there yet. I mean, some of these kind of puzzle games are are really some of the best we can do at at the moment. Not that there aren't some good games that are more action-oriented as well. There certainly are, but it feels like we're still at the very beginning of this part of the journey, and it'll definitely be interesting to see where it leads in the future. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting thing with those controllers. There's, I think it's actually the switch that they have where there's something going on with how they do their haptics feedback where you can actually feel the number of balls that are inside of a virtual box. Mm-hmm. So that really just brings all of VR from its inceptions and people just playing around with how do I make something more immersive from the 60s on all the way up to the 2010s. And really going past that point is kind of superfluous at this moment because we don't know how the history really pans out because everyone is keeping it so close to their chest. Exactly. Since we've sort of covered all the virtual reality stuff, what should we delve into next time? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we delved into the history of a little guy named Mario, one of the iconic video game mascots. And since we're all about balance in this podcast, trying to show things from every side and show things fairly, I think it's only fair that we look at the opposition's mascot in some level of detail as well. I am, of course, talking about our good friend, Sonic the Hedgehog. These his middle name, by the way. They actually trademarked that. 
Really? True story. Now, the real question is, is the Mario television show or the Sonic television show the better one? Gotta go fast. All right. You heard it here. The Sonic one's better. (laughs) I never watched the Sonic one, but um, as bad as the Mario one was, I'm pretty sure the Sonic one was probably better. But yes, next time we got next time on They Create Worlds, Jeff, we gotta go fast. Gotta go fast. Alright. Quickly reviewing history. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book is through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 